Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here in Wiltshire, which is sunny and actually not as cold as it's been for a few weeks. Hello, it's Richard Heller in south-east London, which is cold and damp. Now, we've uh, got a fascinating guest today from New Zealand, which incidentally is taking a stranglehold in the second test match against West Indies in front of a, a real crowd. Richard, could you introduce our guest? Indeed. We're really delighted to welcome David Leggett, who is one of New Zealand's foremost cricket writers He's toured extensively with the New Zealand cricket team, with um, the New Zealand Press Association, and as the former chief cricket writer for the New Zealand Herald. His father, Gordon, was a former New Zealand test batsman, is a New Zealand selector, a manager, and um, chairman of the New Zealand Cricket Council. David, it's wonderful to have you to talk about the rise and rise of uh, New Zealand cricket. And um, welcome, and I hope... You're enjoying better conditions than, than we are here. <laughs> yes, thank you, Richard. Thank you, Peter. Lovely to be with you. David, as we were saying, New Zealand have taken a stranglehold on um, this test against the West Indies. Um, I remember mm. the era when um, it was usually the other way around, when um, yes. <laughs> it was yeah. unusual, shall we say, for New Zealand to take a stranglehold on the West Indies, but they are really an extraordinarily good team at the moment and seem to have discovered a new sensation. Tell us a little bit about um, Kyle Jamison. Well, I can tell you that he's six foot eight in, uh, in what we'd call old money. Mm-hmm. Uh, but think in terms of Ambrose, Garner, Tom Moody, up around uh, that sort of height. Uh, he's 25. He's from Auckland originally, but he moved down to Christchurch about six years ago to kind of better himself, better his game, if you like. And I suspect also for an education, um, a particular degree he wanted to do. But he play, he's been around a wee while. He's not a, he's not, even though he's 25, he's, he's not a, a complete newbie. He made his first class debut in, uh, six years ago. So he's been around a wee while. And there has been talk about him in those times when he was doing well for Canterbury, that this might be a guy who could go on a step further. And then he got a chance, and lo and behold, he's now up to, well, he's halfway through his fourth test, and he's up to 18 wickets at 13 apiece. <laughs> and uh, he's, he's, it's pretty impressive because, because he's got the height. That means that he can produce, if he's good enough, devastating late in-swing, which we've seen. Uh, and he is a, a real asset. Uh, we, at the moment, don't have... We're not big on spin in New Zealand. Our conditions at the moment don't really lend it to it. So... If you look at Tim Southey, Trent Bolt, Neil Wagner, and now this chap, uh, and there's a couple of others who are sort of floating about as well, that seems to be the way we're going at the moment. And Southey's had a new lease of life, and he's been doing well. Bolt's been a bit um, quiet since he came back from India, from the IPL. But very promising signs. It'll be another convincing win. I mean, the West Indies, to be honest, are a rabble. They're, they're just terrible. Uh, if you take out um, two or three of their players, they'd be they'd have nothing. They've got guys like I mean Brathwaite's pretty handy, and this boy Jermaine Blackwood is doing very well. But really, they're they're a shambles in the field. They're awful, and they're just not competitive. A far far cry from what we all remember from um, a few years. Yeah, back. it's so sad because they actually earlier this year when they came to Britain, 
came to England, they 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 won the first test, and I because you uh, it's something about world cricket needing the West Indies, isn't there? And so when they do yeah. fall apart like they are doing, it's kind of worrying. I think for, for a lot of people for a long time had the West Indies as, if you like, their second team or their second favourite team. But now that it's, there's all sorts of problems I suspect they've got there. They've been through various coaches with names that we all know from when they played in better times. Uh, and I actually feel very sorry for Jason Holder, whom I've met and struck me as a nice guy and pretty intelligent and keen to do the best he could. And I kind of feel he's been let down a bit for, by various players who simply haven't measured up. And what on earth the, the great players of 20 years ago make of it now, I do not. Uh, I hate to think, really. While we're on West Indian cricket, we, we have heard, heard from some previous guests, including the great commentator, Fazir Mohammed. There's some deep sort of structural problems in West Indian cricket. There's the um, lack of money. There's the there's enduring inter-island conflicts, um, problems in administration. Above all, um, they mentioned the sort of competition from American sports to cricket, uh, the yep. magnetic pull of... Um, well, I, I know that I've heard that there has been a lot of um, interest in the NBA, the basketball, because, of course, in the West Indies, they, it all gets... this. Let's say pre-COVID, uh, it got beamed in. They could see what the earnings were for these players who are, you know, six foot, six, six foot five, and they could see a future for themselves. Versus cricket, which doesn't have the financial wherewithal. So you can understand impressionable young men would say, well, what's my best option? I'll go for the basketball, thanks very much. And I think that's a terrible problem for the West Indies. It's a terrible, terrible problem for, for cricket too because those great, the great West Indies players of previous generations, they were so wonderful for the game as a whole. And actually, it has to be said, basketball it just isn't anywhere near as good a sport as cricket. Ooh. Peter, every game should start 85 all with three minutes to go in my book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And even yeah. then I could give it a miss. Yes. <laughs> Basketball was invented by a clergyman to give young people something to do instead of hanging around at street corners. So it's, it's fulfilled that. that. Yes, yeah, it's it's fulfilled that purpose. Yeah. But anyway, David. Well, maybe New Zealand will take up the slack that West Indian that New Zealand has got such a good team. Maybe they'll become their current idols and role models instead of in place of the the West Indies. Well, I I think they they are in at the moment. They're in a rich vein of of players coming through. They've got a good leader who leads from the front. He's not necessarily a forceful personality like, say, Brendan McCullum or Stephen Fleming, for that matter, or Jeff Howarth going back mm -hmm. a few years uh, before that. But Williamson is a terrific player. He's oh, the sort gosh. of chap who, yeah. as one person told me, on a spare day, a lot of the players would go off to play golf. He would go to the nets. And just have a hit because that's the way he is. He doesn't particularly like golf for one thing, and he'd just rather go to the nets to work on his forward defence or work on his turn to backward square, whatever it happens to be. So he's a totally dedicated, focused cricketer, and he's a good guy as well. He's a nice guy, and they've got in behind him. Um, they've got bowlers who are doing their job. There's some batting depth now, and they've got a handful of players looking to push their way in. The boy Devin Conway, you may have heard about in Wellington, who's very much banging on the door at the moment. So it's good times. What is it about New Zealand which 
even though, what's the population of your country? About four million at the moment. Four million people. That's like the same size as same Wales. Why is yep. it? What is it which keeps on creating world class epic cricketers of the way you have done? Oh gosh. Uh, well, there's an element of, I suppose, immigration where players have come in. Say Neil Wagner's a good example. May never have been sighted if he'd stayed in South Africa. Decided to come over. Roger Twos from your neck of the woods was another one a few years mm. ago. Decided to come over and, and see how they went. Worked out very well. They uh, were able to add some experience and their talent. And it all pulled together, if you like. Uh, and we've always been a country who have had a handful of really standout, world-class players. And they've been supported by what I would call a group of players who are good international standard without being yeah, above that. That's right. Yeah. Um, and it's the sum of the parts. It's, it's very much a... Um, Everybody chips in. Everyone does their bit. You might get two handy wickets. That might be your contribution. But the star at the other end is getting five, for example. So I think there's also a feeling that it's often said that we punch above our weight. I'm not necessarily sure about that. I, it's not a term I'm particularly fond of, but there's a great resilience. And this probably yeah, comes from the New Zealand character, perhaps. And that that pushes them along, and now they're much more miles more professional than they were thirty odd years ago. And you can look back to let's say the nineteen. I would be inclined to say the start of the seventies. Things have started to pick up a little bit from then. And you know the numbers about our our test successes mm-hmm. early on. I mean, I quite like just to review all the uh, the history of New Zealand cricket because I don't think it goes it's... back. It goes back. I was amazed to discover how far back it went. It's, it's... Very, very long established, isn't it, David? Mm. There was a was it Charles Darwin watched a cricket match in um, New Zealand in 1835, uh, played Thank by you. Maoris. So somebody must have been there earlier to teach the, the Maoris how to play cricket. Because that's very early on in the history of New Zealand itself, isn't it? I it's mean, before it's... New Zealand was even a, 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 officially a colony, wasn't it? Yeah. That's right. And if you wanted to extrapolate that out, you could you could also suggest that. England has done a lot more for New Zealand cricket than our near neighbours, for example, because for one thing, they were the first country to come here and introduce cricket as they did all around the world. uh, And we picked up on that. The Australians, who by rights should have been much better disposed towards the near neighbours, it was a very different story. So that's why there has long been a special affection for English cricket, because we owe them so much for getting our feet on the ground and getting in the game and going on from there. When was the first recorded match in New, in New Zealand? Ah, I can tell you that. The first, well, I'll, I'll put it to you this way. It's 1844 is the first report of a game in New Zealand, which was in a place called Nelson in the Nelson Examiner. Uh, and and it, was, it was talked about then that this was the, the first sort of official game, if you like. And things really didn't sort of pick up until George Parr came over with his team about 1864. And they played against Canterbury and Otago. And uh, Otago then, bear in mind, was the gold rush years. So mm-hmm. they had a quite a big population, a bit itinerant, but a lot of people there, Southland and the All England 11, as they were known. So you get an, an All England 11 goes to New Zealand as early as the 1860s, no. yeah. Yeah, that's right. They were in Australia and they popped over for a, to, for a bit of 
maybe a bit of R and R, and also to play some cricket. And the the first first class game in New Zealand is listed as Canterbury against Otago in Dunedin, January eighteen sixty four. Now, uh, Dunedin, which seems funny to look at it now, uh, Wellington's the capital city. Auckland's the biggest city by a mile. But back in those days, it was believed that Dunedin would become the major city in New Zealand because that was gold rush times and a lot of people coming in by ship. And Dunedin was a very important city back in those in those times before you got the drift north, which went on over decades. A little later on, New Zealand became the first setting for an international cricket betting scandal, didn't it? Ah, that's our old friend Ted Pooley. That's right. Yes, that's a um, that's a cracking story. Actually, I've, I've found something here which will give you a sense of what it was all about. And because this is what the tours were like back then. New Zealand were due to play the 18 of Canterbury. And it was, an, it was referred to as an odds match. Paulie struck up a wager with a local man, a shilling apiece that each of Canterbury's 18 batsmen would be out for a duck. Now, what the man didn't realise was that Paulie was actually injured. So he stood as an umpire in the game, which helped his chances considerably. In the end, 11 men were out for a duck. Pooley won a healthy sum of money, and the Canterbury man refused to pay. There was a punch-up, and Pooley was thrown in um, jail. The team, meanwhile, travels on to back to Melbourne without their keeper, play the first <laughs> test in 1877, and Pooley later gets back to uh, England, joins up with the team on uh, en route back home. So that was, if you like, you say, the first sort of significant betting scandal. He sounds like a bit of a chancer to, to me. So. <laughs> I, there were plenty of betting scandals in the early years of uh, cricket in England as well. Yes. In fact, it basically was, it was nothing but betting scandals in the early decades of I, English cricket. I guess that was probably more than cricket. That was just life, wasn't it? That was, mm. back then, life was pretty tough. And if you had a chance to make a dollar or a pound or two uh, with a wager, I think, a lot of the population were probably pretty keen on doing that. You heard about racehorses and lords and, and earls and what have you. And I think you're right. I think there was a lot of it going on back then. But that's actually why the laws of cricket were introduced in order to regulate uh, what was a kind of Wild West field to cricket matches. Well, actually, they were, strictly, they were introduced to, as a means of settling wages. Actually, as simple as that. They weren't even there really to regulate cricket. The Cricket was an outlet for betting in the in the 18th century in England, and they needed laws to decide who'd actually won and how the bets, you know, were to be settled. <laughs> so, uh, but um, it's so fascinating. It's such an unexplored area, which many people, including me, don't really know about, David. I mean, when was the mm. first test match? New Zealand's first test was 1929-30. England came out, played in Christchurch, um, and the series had... I suppose you'd say some special significance because in the second match, which was in Wellington, uh, C.S. Dempster, Stewie Dempster, and a chap called John Mills or Jack Mills were the opening batsmen. And they both made centuries, so therefore obviously New Zealand's first test centuries. But they also put on a stand of 276, I think it was, from memory. And that was regarded, quite rightly, as the first really significant event in New Zealand cricket. Um, and from there, you had teams coming over. England teams would pop in after they'd been in Australia. Say the Body Line Tour, for example. Mm -hmm. They popped over after that. 
1937 they came over. Did they play a test match when they popped over uh, after the body line? 1931-2, wasn't it? it 32-3. 32-3, yeah. They did. And actually, that was the one I think Walter Hammond made a triple century. If I remember correctly, I'd have to double-check that. But um, No, he did. It was, as high, it was then the highest test score. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Yep. That was a 3-3-8, three, three, wasn't it, from memory, yes, Richard? 3-3-7, three, 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 I think. 3-3-7. Three, 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 giving him one extra run. And I think he was only out yeah. once, and I think he had an average, a test average on the series of about 500. Now, <laughs> well, you see, that. the situation then was, if you can imagine that um, New Zealand at that stage had four first-class provinces, Auckland, Wellington, Canterbury, Otago. So they played once each summer, so you've got three games. And you're up against the likes of the Hammonds and the Voses and the full-time hard-headed pros. So really, it was a completely uh, one-sided situation. And that continued right through 46-7. They came over and played 50-51 when Brown was the captain. And it was very difficult. Our guys would go out and they would do their level best, but they were outmatched, to put it simply. So Australia made their first very unfortunate event. Australia had sent over sort of Australian 11 type teams for a few years. And it was almost like a sop. We'll send some chaps over and people like Monty Noble and Trump have played in, uh, on, on one trip. But a few of these guys would come over. They'd beat the local opposition, go back home. And that was the end of it until 1946 when they sent over a a fairly strong team, Linwall, Miller, Hassett, Barnes, uh, Bill Brown, etc., etc. And they played one test in Wellington. And um, it was a very unfortunate outcome, uh, which I think had uh, long-lasting repercussions. And that New Zealand were bowled out for 42 and 54. I think there was six hours batting in the entire match. <laughs> and um, the Aussies, I think, went home and said, well, this lot aren't much chop, so we don't need to worry about them for a while which was very unfortunate. There was a gulf, absolutely, but they kind of turned their backs on us a bit. They would still send over a B team to, to knock about for a little while, but it wasn't until 1973 that we got another chance. That's so late, isn't it, yeah. in the history of Test oh, cricket? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, if you think about it, that was tw- that's, 40, that's only 47 years ago. So I think it's fair to say that that, um, that one-off test did irreparable harm to New Zealand. There were several players who, who weren't sighted again in the New Zealand team. Uh, one person I should mention was Jack Cowie, took six for 40, and he was an outstanding bowler by any standards. He was the guy when New Zealand stopped off in Australia at the end of their 1937 tour to England. They played against South Australia. D.G. Bradman, and they were, back then, they needed the money from the gates, and money was what New Zealand cricket, which was in a fairly powerless state, needed. So it comes South Australia's turn to bat late on the first day, Bradman 11 not out overnight. So in the morning, there were thousands queued up to get into Adelaide Oval to watch uh, the great man, and Cowie came on and had him caught behind in his first over. And the crowd literally... (laughs) turned, went back out the gate and down the road and back to the office or the factory because that was all they'd come to see was the Don. And uh, Cowie was an outstanding bowler. He had nine tests uh, and I think he took 45 wickets at about 20. Eight of them were against England. So he wasn't playing against, well, back then there were no mug teams really. But that was that was the, 
this status of Cowie, uh, but also the way things were for New Zealand at the time. It's fast, so fascinating, this, the, the hugely delayed match against Australia. What about South Africa, which was the other major test-playing nation at the time? Now, South Africa, 1953, 52, 53, they had gone to Australia and drawn a series, which was a very big deal for them. They came over after that. And I'm just trying to rack my brains. I don't think we played a test against them until then. So again, that was delayed, but we've always had a... Played one and they played a series actually in the 30s. Way, was it the 30s? Uh, and then, then, then there was a gap. Yep. Right, yeah. Mm. We've had a... South Africa, funnily enough, has always been a very difficult team for us to, to beat. We've only won four out of 45 tests against them now. Our record against all the other countries is much better. So there's something funny about South Africa that we've always had um, had trouble with them. But uh, yeah, we, we had a bit of a raw deal back in those early days of, I mean, the first tour by the West Indies was 1951-2. Our first tour there was 1972. Mm. India and Pakistan was the trailblazing tour in 1950. Uh, 4.55. So it was, a, it was a tortuous journey for us, of taking sort of steps to get up the ladder and only really having regular, if you like, regular competition against, uh, against England. You were very good with uh, Pakistan, by the way, uh, which was equally bereft as you were actually uh, early in the early years. And Imran Khan, I think, told me that uh, the present Pakistan Prime Minister that the yep. first test match he went to was 64 to watch his cousin Majid play against mm. New Zealand. Imran was then um, about nine years old, I think. Yes, yeah. 11. But 11, and he was told by... He, he was taken by his uncle, who was the chairman of the Pakistan selectors, and told by his uncle that you, he would be playing cricket for Pakistan in due course. <laughs> it, <laughs> it was, so there he is watching his cousin with his uncle... And tell, informed oh. that his future lay as a test cricketer. It's a, it's an interesting, it's a lovely story, isn't absolutely, it? Absolutely, absolutely. He's an interesting guy. <laughs> oh yes. Yeah. I had to, I had to interview him a couple of times and ghost a column for him at, at, at one point. And uh, yeah, he was a, uh, he's a very distinctive personality. That's for sure. So what was it like uh, ghosting his column for him? You did, well, get, get say, marked out orders, did he? Well, let's just say that the first sample went back to him, no, no, David, no, no. <laughs> and I had to do it again, another crack, and eventually we got there, and, and, and that was fine. But he was a, um, he was, he was such a dominating presence that I can vividly recall in 1989 they'd come over and he was the captain, and the first test was due to be in Dunedin. Oh, sorry. First test was completely washed out in Dunedin. On the fourth evening, what would have been the fourth evening, they agreed, let's play a one-dayer tomorrow to get something out of the, the stop. Gone down to the ground in the morning. It was a bit wet, but players were warming up and what have you. Meanwhile, and I, got, I heard this from the driver of their bus, Imran was back at the hotel. The players uh, were... were uh, so I should say the New Zealand players were down there warming up. Pakistan's players had all got on the bus apart from Imran. And the bus driver was in the foyer sort of sweating bullets about where's the, where's this chap gone. The rest of the team were on the bus. Imran strode across the foyer of the of the uh, hotel and the driver said, here, the bus is ready for you, Imran. We're all set to go. And he said, now I will have my breakfast. 
went into the bre breakfast room, another 10, 15 minutes while he had whatever he was eating, came out and he said to the driver, now we will go to the ground. <laughs> so off they go and they hurry down to the ground and Imran walks out and um, the officials say, well, it's good you're here now, we'll come over and have the toss. And he said, first I will warm up. <laughs> and he's gone down to one end and he's done a bit of loose limbering and what have you and eventually he was happy enough with things so he went over and said no we will toss and that was the way it rolled and he had such a powerful presence none of the players were going to argue with him <laughs> and uh, the New Zealanders just thought it was a bit curious because they couldn't relate to that type of arrangement um, and eventually the game was played and, and on they went but um he was among among the more fascinating cricketers that I've sort of seen or had a had an involvement with, I suppose. So, um, terrific player. A wonderful. Can I tell you a, a similar story involving Colin Cowdery in Pakistan yes. in '68 '9, when the England, Pakistan was pretty well a war zone then because of the impending secession and riots against the Ayub Khan government and. Uh, they, they, they were having a lot of difficulty travelling around and they arrived at one match somewhere in the Punjab quite late in the day and there was already the, the stadium was packed with 25,000 absolute cricket fanatics and uh, the England team and they, 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 the Pakistan authorities tried to rush them to the ground but Kaudry said, no, uh, we're going to get changed, we're going to relax, we're not going and there was this baying crowd outside and eventually he came up with this immortal line, he said, no, but no, no Englishman ever starts a game of cricket without a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can imagine. Yes. <laughs> and so, in due course, they played. David, can I take you back a little, a few years? Well, we're almost the beginnings again. As we said, New Zealand and cricket has a long history, actually longer than rugby in New Zealand. Mm. But New Zealand rug very, very quickly becomes a world power. In rugby, it takes much longer even to get recognised internationally in in yeah. cricket. What's the sort of what well, I, look, is I, rugby in New Zealand rather than rather than New Ze rather than cricket? Well, I think you can trace that back a little bit to the early settlers who came out, and I think we have to imagine that in those early pioneer years, they were extremely hard times, and they bred durable, probably strong and silent types, and for them. Rugby, because of its robustness and its physicality at the end of a working day or working week, they would go out and bash into each other and trample over them and what have you. And it appealed to a large section of the male, the growing male community. Cricket, I suspect, probably didn't have that widespread uh, appeal. Rugby is is pretty simple. Back then, it was pretty simple. You got the ball, you charged forward, you knocked folks out of the way, or you tackled them and you whacked them, or whatever you did. Fairly easy to follow. And if you were of that mindset that this is a um, this is a tough old place we're in, and we're chopping down trees every day, and we're trying to build houses and clearings and what have you, and it appealed more to them because it was simple. Cricket was a little more complicated with its it's got bats and you've got wickets and you've got fielding positions. No. Let's just keep it simple. And I suspect, and I, no one's ever said this to me, I've just formed an impression that that was part of it. It was easier to do. And then, of course, you add into that, we had our first team that went to the UK in 1905 
beat everybody apart from Wales and lost 3-0 to a disputed tribe. That's another story. And the legend of the Invincibles and the All Blacks, who allegedly was the name came because a British writer described them after seeing their first couple of games as they he meant to put that they were running as though they were all backs. And there was a typo. <laughs> now, blame, the, blame the copy taker, the old story. And it put all blacks and it became all blacks. And ever since then, it's all blacks. So um, I think people thought, gee, I'm, just, I'm going to strive my best to to be an all black. And I think that it came on in leaps and bounds. I think that's the simplest way I can put it to you. Uh, Maoris established themselves in New Zealand rugby, didn't they? Much more yes. quickly than they did in New Zealand cricket. They, they certainly did. There have been a few Maori players who have made an impact, and I'll just give you a handful of names. The, the best-known New Zealand Maori players, the Adam Perori, who was a fine keeper, you'll remember, mm-hmm. yeah, sure. Daryl Tuffy, who was a fast bowler, and there's others like Jesse Ryder, for example, Susie Bates, a very good women's player, Interesting. Uh, Craig McMillan, Kyle Mills, Trent Bolt. It's a difficult one because there's no question in my mind that it's a sort of an untapped talent pool. David, essentially, very important point, New Zealand cricket for years was was an amateur game. It was an all-amateur game, wasn't it? I mean, they didn't get you didn't get paid as a New Zealand yep. cricketer, did you? I think, don't think you even got paid even when you went on tour. Is that right? Absolutely. And that brings us on to your father, who had a career as a New Zealand um, test player. And he didn't get he didn't get paid, did he? Well, there was a very small amount which was given as a sort of a daily stipend, I suppose. But Bert Suckler, for example, had to stop playing because he couldn't afford to go on tour. Back in those days, organisations like Rothmans, the breweries, they would look after certain players and they would give them quote-unquote jobs. But there wasn't an awful lot of that went on. Um, so it was tough. It was you, know, you had to love the game or have some considerable means to be able to, to, to do that. Otherwise, it was very difficult. I think from memory, Sutcliffe took a break from international cricket of um, about five years, from 59 through to about 64. And that was primarily, I think, because of, um, of the, the difficulties that, that arose from, from the financial battles. But if you go go forward from there, um, Glenn Turner, John Parker, Richard Hadley, early 70s or late 60s, they went over to England and they got themselves involved in the county game, Jeff Howth, and that actually opened the door. A lot of people looked and saw, well, actually, we don't really, do we, do we want these guys playing professional cricket or do we like it the way it was? And these guys pushed the door open. So now, even now, a lot of cricketers go to England in the, in the northern summer and play for clubs and leagues all over the place. So things changed with that move to being hired by Surrey or Worcestershire. Yeah, Glenn Turner, what a Worcestershire opening bat. What a fine player he was. So you mm. is that the moment when New Zealand suddenly becomes a power on the world stage? I think they became, they became better. Because uh, like before that... The way you have to think of it, and I did make a note of something which uh, I thought sort of covered that quite nicely. I just can't lay my hands on it now. But essentially, it was an amateur game. And New Zealand were known for their good sportsmanship, and they'd go out and do their best. And then things changed. Yeah, that's a fair comment. Things changed 
around that late 60s where there was a wee bit more of a hard-nosed attitude came in. And this was down to people like Turner, Hadley, Howarth, John Parker, these sort of people. So, um, yeah, that was a significant step. There's no question about that. Actually, it might be worth my while telling you now that um, in the first not 20 years that New Zealand were playing Test cricket, they won nine matches. They won six in the 1960s, three in the 1970s, but they were very significant matches. But they've won 34 tests in the last 10 years. So that'll give you an idea of, of the, how, how quickly the curve has gone in an upward trajectory. The three in the 70s, by the way, were um, when they, they beat Australia for the first time ever in Christchurch, Glenn Turner, two centuries, beating India by an innings at the Basin when Richard Hadley took seven for 23. And that was when, you may recall the chant of Hadley, Hadley started to reverberate around New Zealand grounds. And then uh, beating England for the first time, of course, at the Basin Reserve, 1978, bowled out for 64. Hadley takes 10 for 100 in the match. So that was a significant decade, even though we only won three tests in that time. But from then on, things have gone upwards, onwards and upwards. And as you know, now we're looking at um, test, number, test win number 103 tomorrow, potentially. Mm. Your father, David, was um, responsible for a lot of the improvement in New Zealand cricket, wasn't he? He became, after his test playing career, he became a selector, manager, and um, a, a chairman mm. of the New Zealand Cricket Council in the 60s. Um, sadly, he passed away young. But he set up New Zealand cricket on a, yes. um, you know, on a better trajectory in the 60s, didn't he? And they, they, they start winning matches and they become just generally more formidable opponents. Well, one of the things that I know irked him was there was an attitude back then that somebody would be given a test and if they failed, they'd go back out the door onto the heap. And he firmly believed that you needed to give people a chance. So if they play a test and it doesn't go well, and remember, New Zealand has a very small playing population, so you can't just keep throwing people on on the scrap heap after one game. So he was, I know he was instrumental in changing this attitude of, well, let's, let's give somebody three games, two or three games, if we can, and just see what he can do. And he, he'd felt that himself. And um, so then when he had a chance, he tried to change the thinking. And it certainly did change. And the more so once people like Frank Cameron, who was a very influential man, former test fast bowler, and he became uh, heavily involved as a selector and what have you. And that was what he also fostered. So we got to a point where we had a group of players who were of the, the Hadley, uh, Wright, Edgar, Coney, Snedden, Crow, And they basically picked themselves. Give or take the odd selection for several years. So I think that was a legacy of what Dad and others were trying to do and say, give people a chance. Don't just throw them out straight away. Yes, yeah, so, but Richard Hadley... He's probably one of the greatest players that any country has ever produced. Mm. He had quite a slow start, didn't he, in Test cricket, I seem to remember. His first test was at Wellington um, against the Pakistanis in 1973. And at some point he was dropped. It might have been for the next Test match, which is unthinkable now, of course. But back then you had Richard Collins, you had his brother Dale, and there was somebody else whose name just escapes me. And so he did have a slow start. And that win over India in 1976 was when whoosh, 
it all sort of exploded. And he, he'd rocked the Indians and a, a couple of them weren't too keen on being out in the middle and batting and, and it rolled on from there. And um, for people of a certain generation, they remember the next year when the Australians came out and at Eden Park and Hadley had a purple patch of about five overs a spell in which he was giving, I think it was Gary Gilmore, and it might have been Doug Walters, a real hurry up. And the crowd on the those days, the terraces, and they all had these beer cans. And looking back, awful sight. But anyway, they all joined in and this Hadley, Hadley started up. That was a significant point for New Zealand cricket where we got behind a hero, if you like, in a, an extremely... Um, verbal and visual way I guess so um, yeah Hadley once he was away then there was no stopping him um, he changed his run up in the early 80s um, to to shorten it up to give him a bit more longevity and we all know what happened from there. David your, your father as a player went on a um, New Zealand's pioneering tour of Pakistan in the 50s and um, they were very popular on that tour because of the very sporting way they played, particularly in one test match. But um, he also had a very important um, personal role in that tour, um, didn't he? <laughs> yes, he did. And look, you're absolutely, uh, you're absolutely right, Richard, that it was, a, um, it was a, a trailblazing type of tour. And part of it was we are building bridges. This is a part of the world we don't know much about. So we're going to be shaking hands or we're going to be diplomatic and polite and what have you. And one of the things which I always find when I think about it is, is, is worth a good chuckle, if you can imagine it happening now. Everywhere they went uh, in Pakistan and India, they were asked to go to dinners at the end of a day's play. And Dad, because he was a barrister and a chap called Ian Galloway, who was the radio commentator, did some work for NZPA and was on the tour as well, also a barrister, uh, he had his dinner suit as well. So they would be sent off to speak at dinners around the country. Whereas the others who were, shall we say, less eloquent, um, stayed back in the hotel or played the piano in the bar or whatever. So on many occasions on that tour, these guys were off speaking at dinners after a day's play, which I'd imagine is the last thing you'd feel like doing when you'd been beaten from pillar to post, mm. uh, they'd go out and do that. But I think they came home and they thought, actually, they had got a lot out of the tour because yeah. they got to do things that all the others didn't do. And because they, were, they, they talked well, it was quite comfortable, quite easy for them to do it. But he came home, I think, with a few sort of fascinating memories of, uh, of what was going on over there. But certainly they, um, there was a view that they wanted to build bridges because, as I say, it was a part of the world that we didn't have much to do with. Even today, if you go, Richard and I go there to Pakistan a great deal, New Zealand is held in exceptionally high regard you, you, as one of the mm. countries which was really loyal uh, to to Pakistan in the, and really encouraging in the early years of Pakistan cricket. Mm. Uh, and so, whereas Australia didn't pay a great deal of attention and the English team yeah. uh, could behave in a very boorish way, um, mm. it, is, mm. it is very interesting that... I've certainly had very warm conversations about New Zealand tourists, and that obviously partly down to your father. Of course, there's a very, very active legal community in Pakistan, very important yes. to the constitution, very politically significant, mm. uh, and that's part of the growth of the country. Apart from test cricket, David, New Zealand became very successful 
from the 70s onwards in One Day Internationals, didn't they? And they had a very good formula for One Day Internationals, and they particularly did very well with a lot of nagging accurate bowlers like Gavin Lawson and Chris Harris, didn't they? Well, you will know the old, you'll know the old argument that the shorter a game, the closer the teams become uh, in terms of, I suppose, skill. Whereas a test match, one team, team A would beat team B reasonably comfortably. Shorten the game and um, good things can can come from it. And I think what we had was a lot of people who would go out there and they'd field their socks off and they could bowl fairly economically and they had enough batsmen that they could chip away and produce decent scores. And we, you, you're right, Richard, that we, we have done well in one-day cricket. And you know, when you had an ace like Hadley there, um, and they had a they had a kind of a, for a long time, a routine where Hadley would bowl his four or five opening over spell. He would then come back and bowl two and usually pick up a wicket, break a partnership. Then he'd come back for the end. And um, I, I think they've got to a stage where They've got the one-day game worked out. Now, you mentioned Gavin Larson. In the 1990s, particularly, pitches in New Zealand tended to be a bit low and a bit slow and, and difficult to score off. And Larson was very accurate. Chris Harris was another one. And they were, they were nicknamed the dibbly-dobblies. But what's happened now is that pitches tend to be greener, bouncier. And when you've got people like Bolt, um, Southie and, and others... You're silly if you don't utilise their talent on it. So I think the conditions have changed a wee bit. But certainly we've been able to to turn ourselves into a pretty competitive one-day team over a long period of time. And, of course, uh, culminating in the 2015 and 19 finals. So um, it's it's been an interesting path. But we've, we've certainly prospered in the one-day game. I think, actually, we're ranked about number... We're number two in the test game and number three in the ODIs, I think. That's so it. Um, that's it. Mm. No, we're certainly doing well. And what about T Twenty? What sort of influence has that had in um, on New Zealand? Um, well, I, I, it probably depends a bit on what your 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 view of T Twenty cricket is. Mine is a little bit dismissive, I must say. I'm not a huge fan of it, but I I would never dispute that as a money maker, and that's what a lot of the game is about. So you've got to have these games. Um, people like McCullum, of course, it was it was tailor made for for him. And uh, I, I, I do think that T20 is still a little bit one day, it's your day, the next day, for no discernible reason, it's the other lot, have a good day. So I don't think T20 is, is quite on the same level on this topic as, say, ODIs or, or test matches, but they're there, to, they're, they're there to serve the game and make money. I think that's their primary objective, I suppose. It still nags at me, last year's World Cup final. I, I feel guilty that England were allowed to win it. I think it was a it was a mistake. It should, at the very least, have been shared, that. that. It's rather a weird thing mm. about how many fours you'd hit. You were a great team, really. You were the moral victors in some ways. Well, I, I actually sat up all night. I was at home and I sat up, and I didn't mean to. I thought, I'll watch the first couple of hours, then get a short sleep, then get up and see how the last couple of hours goes. I sat through the whole night. I just found the whole thing sort of fascinating and gripping. And um, I was interested by the fact that New Zealand afterwards seemed to, okay, they were shattered, but they seemed to take it pretty well. And uh, I, I was talking to somebody shortly after who was very close to the team. And I asked, 
if that was the case that they took it as one of the one of those things that happens and we gave it a good shot but you know better luck next time and he gave me an answer which made it very clear that the players put on a brave public face but behind closed doors were angry and felt that they had been not dudded exactly but they felt like they had um, been deprived of of a, a genuine what should have been a winning chance so they they took it well and they accepted that these are the things that happened but deep down they were quite hurt about it yeah you behaved they behaved very very well but i i, I still yep. feel that in some ways justice wasn't done in that great obviously it's yep. an utterly memorable greatest match of, of yep. odi yep. cricket in many ways but i think you were done in injustice yeah, I think there's a there's a strong feeling about that over here, and you still get people talking about it and saying that that in fact New Zealand had been um, well and truly um, got the raw end of the uh, the raw end of the stick on that. What did New Zealanders think of Ben Stokes? As well? of course, a player you know, New Zealand born a player who got away along with this man and some others like Clary Grimmett and the. Uh, yes, in the twenties and thirties, and um... I think I think there's a lot of admiration for Stokes because, look, he left I think when he was twelve, so that's the mm-hmm. way it goes. His father had a yeah. job over there, um, and and there's no sort of uh, there's a little bit of oh, it would have been handy if we had him for the mm-hmm. team, but beyond that, I think there's only a fair a lot of admiration from the way he um, plays the game, uh, and I believe they get on pretty well with him when they. They come across each other, and he played for Canterbury a year or so ago. Played a couple of games, and um, I've heard nothing but uh, but good things about him. Well, that's uh, I think very typical, typically generous of New Zealand New Zealand cricket. Uh, David, let's look forward, if we can, to Pakistan. I've got a tour coming up. Uh, they got into hot water, didn't they, because of the um, um, some players broke the quarant- very strict quarantine yep. rules. Has that rule yep. sort of simmered down now? Uh, it has simmered down, but it was um, it was potentially quite um, put the tour. I wouldn't say it put it at ri- well. I suppose it did put it at risk in a way because they were given a final warning, uh, and the rules here are that uh, when you go into a quarantine situation in a hotel, you cannot come out, for example, into the corridor and stand around and chat with your teammates or swap a sandwich or whatever. You just can't do that. And whether that was made clear enough to them, I don't know. But certainly the guy back in New Zealand who's in charge of for the government of all these regulations made it very clear, this is your last warning. And um, silly show of actor came out and, <laughs> and uh, said, this is New Zealand's well out of order. We're doing you a favour being over here, et cetera, et cetera. And he, um, <laughs> a show he got is often out of order. Often is out of order. We did a chapter in our book. He's been out of order since he was five years old. <laughs> but I must say, I mean, New Zealand has handled uh, the whole COVID thing with such good sense and you've earned the admiration of the world. I must say it's been uh, fabulous talking to you. I had learnt so much about the history of New Zealand cricket and so much to admire. That very much goes to me too, David. It's been wonderful having you. It's been very, very instructive. Uh, it's given us a real uh, perspective on um, New Zealand's emergence as a major cricket power. So thank you for joining us. Uh, it's now the middle of the night. Thank you especially for um, <laughs> <laughs> For joining us in view of the 13 hours ahead. 
Um, no, that's a pleasure, Richard and Peter. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, I think by my reckoning, I've got about five topics we didn't even touch. So there we go. Well, we well we'll have again you on the game. Come, come back for a second innings. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Let me know whenever you, whenever you want to have a chat. Happy to. Please do. Yeah. Thank you very much. So in the meantime, it's uh, goodbye from me, Peter O'Born, in a still sunny, beautiful December morning in Wiltshire. Goodbye from me, Richard Heller, and it's still cold and grey in south-east London. <laughs>